0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to Episode 16 of the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondak, and no, Indiana Jones does not and did not teach at Yale, though that campus does look awfully familiar. In this episode, I speak with Jonathan Zittron about the future of the Internet.
1: One major point of the book is that the Internet... uh, should be understood as the things hooked up to it, the PCs or non-PCs that we use at the endpoints, not just the network in between. It's not the way network engineers have been used to thinking about it, and for their purposes for good reason. But one of my worries, for example, is that if you have uh, an open internet where data can flow freely, but the primary boxes attached to it are controlled by their vendors and not so much by their users, and that's the kind of box that's coming more into predominance, that you end up with a closed Internet. And uh, I'm concerned about that.
0: And Benny Morris about the founding of Israel and the first Arab-Israeli war.
1: Yeah, the the Arabs generally
2: misread the international community and uh, repeatedly boycotted international committees which came here to try and sort out the problem. And they did the same with UNSCOP, basically giving them a cold shoulder, um, not not, uh, respecting the the commissioners. um, And the Jews, on the other hand, understood uh, the power of diplomacy, the the idea of compromise and persuasion, and they uh, worked on the committee members uh, until, as I said, the committee members um, uh, on the 1st of September um, offered recommendations to the General Assembly to establish two states in Palestine, to partition the country into two states.
0: Stay tuned. You may be listening to this show on an iPod or a TiVo, two devices that are at the heart of a change in the nature of the Internet, from computers capable of generative programs to tether devices that are run to a great extent from the companies that created them. In his new book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It, Jonathan Zitron looks at this and other changes and wonders if the generative power of the old Internet can be maintained in this new era. Jonathan Zittrain is Professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at Oxford University and co-founder of Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Jonathan Zittrain, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Thank you. The title of your book is The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. Since I think it's fair to assume that the internet will continue into the future, what is it exactly that you believe needs to be stopped?
1: Well, I see, uh, for one thing I should say, the uh, future of the Internet is what I want to stop, the future that is, not the Internet itself. Um, and part of my thinking in the book is that the Internet is not just the physical network connecting everything together. It is a certain ethos that made this particular network, the Internet, work, and it's the activities that we undertake through it. And so one major point of the book is that the Internet Uh, should be understood as the things hooked up to it, the PCs or non-PCs that we use at the endpoints, not just the network in between. It's not the way network engineers have been used to thinking about it and for their purposes, for good reason. But one of my worries, for example, is that if you have uh, an open Internet where data can flow freely, but the primary boxes attached to it, are controlled by their vendors and not so much by their users, and that's the kind of box that's coming more into predominance, that you end up with a closed Internet. And uh, I'm concerned about that.
0: This is not the first time there's been a closed Internet system. I mean, there were closed systems, walled gardens back in the 90s with AOL and CompuServe. How is this different?
1: In the book, I try to lay out a trajectory uh, of the technology, both at the endpoints and of networks in the middle, in part, making the point that the network didn't have to be this way. There were plenty of other implementations of consumer information networks for which the Internet was competing as kind of a dark horse candidate. It was an experiment that, kind of, was a pilot project that just eventually became the main show without any real milestones uh, converting it over. And. When you look back at some of the proprietary networks, the AOLs and the CompuServes, you can see the ways in which it was just understood that your activities online, your identity, would be managed by a single company. And that could have some great features for security, for accountability, but also an amazing measure of control exercised by that company directly or by a regulator demanding that the company do one thing or another. So part of the point of the book is We could get ourselves back into a state where it's reminiscent of the CompuServe and the AOL of that era, where there's just a handful of companies that mediate. And the way we would get ourselves into that state is by asking for it, that the market forces can actually push us there. And any individual decision contributing to that movement might be rational, but the ultimate place we end up is worse than what we have now.
0: So you're talking about things today, and you refer to them as tethered appliance like uh, machines, like the uh, Apple iPod, TiVos, um, the, I want to say, Xbox or Microsoft. Are those the things you're talking about?
1: Yeah, there are basically two sets of phenomena that I say are nearly functionally equivalent, which is itself kind of a contestable statement. Um, on the one hand are what you just referred to, what I call tethered appliances, and these are a return some of the information appliances of the past, like adding machines and dedicated word processors, where you have devices that you buy for a particular set of purposes, and they don't evolve a whole lot. And that includes mobile phones, most video game consoles, uh, uh, the Amazon Kindle, things that the vendor controls them even after they leave the factory. That's what makes them tethered and that you don't have much of an opportunity to reprogram it, either yourself or by having some third-party offer you software to reprogram it. The Apple iPhone has been a great example of this because when it was first introduced, Steve Jobs was adamant that Apple would control every aspect of the phone. And he has since said, okay, we're going to have a software development kit. But the way third parties can code software for that phone is, by having to put it through the iPhone Apps Store. So if you have the iPhone software I want to use and I have an iPhone, you can't just give it to me. It has to go through Apple. And Apple not only takes a cut uh if you're to charge me, but they also reserve the right to kill any app that they don't like. And that is a real difference from the standard ecosystem of the PC where you can install anything you want and it doesn't have to go through Bill Gates uh, that we've had for thirty years. I said there were two (laughs) functionally-related phenomena, so that's one, the tethered appliance. The other is the emerging set of Web 2.0 applications and platforms. So to me, the most exciting things about Facebook or Google are not their currently core applications of social networking and web search, respectively, but the fact that each are experimenting with allowing third parties to code on their platform. So you can write a Facebook app that makes use of the social network, but that otherwise does things as varied as allowing you to play Scrabble or to look for dates or whatever it might be. On the Google side, you can do Google Maps mashups and use the powerful Google Maps engine to um, support your own software. But in each of these instances, Google and Facebook quite naturally reserve the right to charge you a fee in the future if they want to or to pull your access as a developer. And that means the application could just evaporate. And that is a really new piece of territory that I don't think we fully appreciated.
0: Let's take a step back to, say, the late 80s and 90s during the internet's early phase. And perhaps a bit of the ethos out there at that time was very libertarian. You could say that the internet was born of a bunch of people who thought, OK, well, we're going to remake society and we don't really want to have a lot of people looking over our shoulders. Um, that generated uh, the degree of generativity, which I'll ask you about a little bit later, that you seem to be very po- pro about in your book, but you also talk a little bit about how the libertarian ethos tended to blind some of the people that were in it to the dark side of the Internet. Could you talk about a little bit about
1: that? Well, I think that the way the Internet grew up, and the PC for that matter, have a kind of do-it-yourself quality to it. that. It's a tinkerer's network and a tinkerer's box attached to it, and if you can't completely configure it, you should get some help. But it's basically your problem. It's been a general idea, and now that the PC and net have gone prime time, and you have so many people using it who are not tinkerers and experts, my worry is that they'll either find themselves moving away towards these tethered appliances and other boxes controlled by vendors so that they'll have a consistent and safe experience, or they'll end up being exploited uh, in the more generative and chaotic systems, and I don't want to see that happen either. Um, so I'm interested in solutions to some of the problems online, including from worms and viruses and other bad code that don't just have people having to figure it out themselves, or writing a check to a security vendor and assuming that that will solve the whole problem
0: so is it a technological issue or is it more kind of a social issue because as I kept reading the book, I got a sense that early on there was very much the pioneer spirit you got to figure this out yourself, although there was community there if if you knew what you were talking about and now it is very much i don't want to see badware I don't want to see a virus I'm just going to write a check and I don't care about what opportunities I might be missing. Is there a middle, some, a middle path somewhere where, I guess that's kind of what one of the things your book talks about, where there might be a more, I don't want to say adult, but more mature society out there trying to balance these freedoms and responsibilities?
1: Yeah, I really want to see a middle zone where we can preserve the experimentalist spirit of the PC and the net while still allowing it to be mission critical functional for all the things that we want to use it for and there's some technical ideas discussed in the book as to how to build machines or functionalities that let you do both and there are also ideas for new technologies that enable people to be more socially helpful to each other so that for example people can subscribe their own pc to a system where it reports its vital signs and then you can ask everybody participating in the system when you encounter some new software what pc um, or when's the first time the software was encountered and get a sense of whether it's brand new or whether it's been around for fifteen years and on average does it make pcs happier or sadder when it runs or How many self-described experts in the group run the software versus people who aren't experts? And that starts to give you the kind of social cues that you might use on deciding whether to enter a movie theater or a restaurant or whether you should feel safe walking down the street that currently aren't available on the Internet.
0: Part of your book talks about Wikipedia. What can Wikipedia teach us about a new way forward for the Internet?
1: Well, I think Wikipedia is fascinating because, for one thing, it's so unlikely that it would work at all. For another, that it works in part by preserving an experimentalist community spirit, even though many of the people who use it aren't even aware of how Wikipedia works. And so some of the problems that Wikipedia hit as it went popular and mainstream and non-Wikipedians came to use it a lot, to me, echo the problems at the technical layer of the Internet and the PC going mainstream. And one of the hopes is to borrow from some of the insights of Wikipedians that have so far managed to keep it going. Um, to apply to other so-called layers of the hourglass.
0: What is the hourglass?
1: The hourglass is a technical phrase um, used by Internet engineers to describe the way in which they have specified so that it can run over any physical medium. That makes a very broad bottom. And that will run any application. We don't know what you're going to do with it. You just... um, are permitted to exchange data. And it's up to you guys, the users of the net, to figure out what you want to exchange data about. That makes a very broad top of the hourglass. It's only narrow in the middle where there's some basic protocols that say how the data gets exchanged. And that's not how the old CompuServe and the AOL worked. And it's not how most content ventures work. Most content ventures have a very limited number of people who are permitted to contribute to them, and then the rest of the world can read it. The idea that anybody can edit as much as read is peculiar to Wikipedia.
0: The future of the internet and how to stop it is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Jonathan Zittron, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. This June marks the 60th anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel. And in his new book, 1948, The First Arab-Israeli War, Benny Morris looks at not only the diplomatic maneuvering around the founding of the country, but also the first armed conflicts between the nascent Jewish state and its Arab inhabitants and neighbors. Benny Morris is professor of history in the Middle East Studies Department of Ben-Gurion University in Israel. Benny Morris, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. My pleasure. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel. Before we get into a discussion of the First Arab-Israeli War, I was wondering if you could give listeners a little bit of background on Jewish settlement in Palestine from the beginning of the 20th century to Israel's founding. By what methods were Jews able to move into and acquire land in Palestine during that time?
2: Well, the Zionist movement, Zionists, or Jews from Eastern Europe essentially, began to move into. to palestine and settle in palestine in the 1880s and um, uh, uh, under the ottoman empire when the turks ruled palestine um, and and this was done basically um, through bribes and um, in turkish uh, indifference and uh, ignorance uh, of the zionist uh, ambitions and and after the ottomans were removed from Palestine by British conquest in 1917-18 during World War I, the, Brit- the British um, encouraged and uh, helped the Zionists to settle in greater numbers in Palestine. And so by 1947, something like uh, 650,000 Jews were living in Palestine side by side with about 1.2 million Arabs.
0: Well, the Second World War was an obvious impetus to the founding of the Jewish state. Uh, But could you talk about how Allied combat operations in the the Middle East prepared Israel for their first armed conflict?
2: Well, uh, there's an indirect connection between the the, um, battles between the Allies and the Axis powers in the Middle East. Um, One indirect um, factor is that tens of thousands of Palestinian Jews volunteered for service in the British Army and in various allied armies, um, and so when when battle was joined between the Jews and the Arabs in Palestine a few years after the end of World War II, um, there were a lot of people with some army training on the Jewish side. Um, But the the, the major factor in World War II which affected the conflict and ultimately um, um, mobilized sympathy worldwide for the Jews was, of course, the Nazi destruction of European Jewry the Holocaust when six million Jews were killed, and, and this, uh, I think, persuaded people like Truman and the French leaders and perhaps even uh, affected the Russian leadership to support the Zionist aim of establishing a Jewish state.
0: But wasn't there a bit of controversy right after the war of Jews immigrating to Israel? I remember th- you had a section of a story about a, a boat that was refused entry into British Palestine at that time.
2: Yeah, yeah, the British from 1939 uh, essentially uh, switched horses until 39, they more or less supported the Zionist enterprise. From 1939, because of various global calculations and an effort to appease the Arabs, the British began to support the Arabs and um, uh, cordoned off Palestine with the Royal Navy and prevented Jews uh, from immigrating in large numbers to Palestine. And this, of course, brings us to the famous incident of the Exodus, a ship loaded with 4,500 Jews who tried illegally to break the blockade and reach Palestine shores, were captured and sent back, essentially, to Europe and Germany by British troops in 1947.
0: It seems, I got from your book, that once the British had decided that this was going to be a very sticky situation, that they withdrew from Palestine pretty quickly.
2: Well, the British were here for 30 years, from 1917 until 1948. During World War II the British were greatly weakened by the events of the war. And as we know, after the war, almost immediately they lost most of their empire, India, Pakistan, and so on. And Palestine was one of the places they wanted to get out of, especially because there was a conflict between the two peoples living in Palestine, the Jews and the Arabs, which they weren't able to reconcile, the British. They weren't able to find a compromise. They weren't able to um, quieten the land. And so they sort of threw in the towel and handed the problem of Palestine back to the United Nations in 1947.
0: Let's talk about the United Nations. Um, 1947, 1948, there was a, a thing called UNSCOP. Uh, could you explain what it was and why the Jews and Palestinians approached it so differently?
2: Well, the United, once the British gave up uh, control or uh, um, decided to give up control of Palestine in the beginning of 1947, and handed the matter over to the United Nations. The United Nations appointed a committee, a UN special committee on Palestine, known as UNSCOP, to investigate the problem and to offer recommendations in a solution. Um, and this they did in a report uh, on the 1st of September 1947. They submitted a report saying that Palestine, the only solution was that Palestine should be divided into two states, one Arab and one Jewish. Uh, this um, principle was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in its resolution, 181, on the 29th of November, 1947. The problem was that uh, the Arabs of Palestine, supported by the Arab states around Palestine, rejected the UN recommendation of partition, rejected the idea of Jewish statehood in any part of Palestine, and attacked uh, the Jewish community in Palestine the day after the resolution was passed.
0: Uh, so is that why when, uh, when UNSCOP came to Israel, or Palestine at that point, before we came to Israel, there was very much a tremendous diplomatic effort on part of the uh, Palestinian Jews to win them over, as opposed to really kind of the cold shoulder that Palestinian Arabs were giving them?
1: Yeah, the,
2: the Arabs generally misread the international community and uh, repeatedly boycotted international committees which came here to try and sort out the problem. And they did the same with UNSCOP, basically giving them a cold shoulder, um, not not, uh, respecting the the commissioners. um, And the Jews, on the other hand, understood uh, the power of diplomacy, the the idea of compromise and persuasion, and they uh, worked on the committee members uh, until, as I said, the committee members um, uh, on the 1st of September. Um, offered recommendations to the General Assembly to establish two states in Palestine, to partition the country into two states.
0: What was the view of Palestine uh, in Arab capitals around uh, this time?
2: Well, the Arab states, which were sort of just emerging into independence uh, at the end of World War II, um, wanted primarily to get rid of the imperial presence in the Middle East, that is, the British and the French. And since Palestine was controlled by the British, Uh, the the Arab states joined the Palestinian Arabs in wanting the British out. The problem was, of course, for the Palestinian Arabs that the Arab states didn't really want the Palestinians to have a state of their own. They didn't like the Palestinian leadership under Haj Amin al-Husseini. In fact, he was hated by most of uh, his fellow Arab uh, leaders. Uh, And some of the um, uh, Arab states coveted parts of Palestine for themselves, the Jordanians, under King Abdullah, had always wanted to annex all of Palestine to the Kingdom of Jordan. And um, uh, once the the United Nations decided on partition, the Jordanians decided they will at least take hold of the, the bulk of the Arab part of Palestine, if they're not going to fight the Jews and take over all of Palestine. And the Egyptians wanted probably parts of southern Palestine, and also wanted to prevent the Jordanians from gaining any part of Palestine. because. Uh, there was a, a rivalry between uh, the Egyptian regime and the King Farouk and the Jordanian regime under, under Abdullah. Um, so so there, was ver- there were various rivalries and feuds between Arab leaders, and there was a sort of a consensus on the Arab side not to enable a Palestinian Arab state to emerge in Palestine.
0: Quite a bit of your work including this book, examines the question of why the Arabs left Palestine between 1947 and 1950. For those of us without a background in the historiography of the birth of Israel, what had been the standard account of this exodus of the Arabs?
2: Well, since 1948, there have been two narratives, um, contradictory narratives, about what created the Palestinian refugee problem, um, why 700,000 Palestinians were displaced from their homes in the course of the 48 War. There was the common Palestinian uh, narrative, an Arab narrative adopted by all the Arab states, that the Palestinians were essentially expelled um, with forethought and planning by uh, the, Zionists, the Zionists and by Israel in the course of '48. The um, traditional Israeli Zionist narrative was that the Palestinian Arabs who were displaced were displaced basically on the orders of their own leaders and on the orders or advice of the Arab leaders outside Palestine. Um, What emerges from the documents is a far more nuanced and complex picture, which uh, takes elements of both traditional narratives and adds several other factors. Um, What emerges is that most of those displaced, most of the 700,000 displaced um, in in the course of the war, uh, were displaced basically by the war itself. In other words, um, the Arabs Uh, feared being injured, feared being killed, did not want to rule, uh, uh, to live under Jewish rule, um, and so fled or moved out of the areas when um, uh, combat reached their doorstep. Uh, Some Arabs were uh, expelled by Jewish forces in the course of the war, and some Arabs um, left their homes on orders from their own leaders. In, or uh, military commanders in the area, uh, because there was a, a, a hampering the advance of the Arab armies or the functioning of the Arab militias. Um, some people probably were affected by it, um, adverse uh, economic conditions, which, which began in, in uh, took hold of parts of Palestine at the start of the war.
0: So, what I'm hearing from you is that there is no, there's nothing in the historical record to back up the claim that there was a specific Israeli policy to move Palestinian Arabs out of Israel?
2: Um, I wouldn't put it quite like that. I would put it like this The, The Yeshuv, the Jewish community in Palestine and its military forces, when the war broke out, did not have a plan or policy to evict the Arabs. On the contrary, We find documentation four months into the war, from the end of March 1948, the war actually began at the end of November 47. In March, at the end of March 48, the Haganah, the Jewish, the main Jewish uh, militia, was still telling its units, ordering its units to leave the Arab communities in the areas allotted for Jewish statehood intact, to leave them, to protect them, if they are not hostile to the Jewish state. What happened, though, was that... In the course of April 1948, the following month, um, a sort of a switch took place, in which the Jews who had been on the defensive had been attacked by the, the Arabs for four months, switched to the offensive, and in switching to the offensive, um, began to relate to the Arabs who were attacking them and to the Arab communities from whom the militiamen ventured out and attacked the Jewish settlements and traffic. They began to relate. Uh, um, Uh, to them um, uh, offensively and with an aim essentially to drive them out uh, um, from areas along the main roads, from areas along the borders. Um, So one sees sort of a switch. It's not a switch, an official switch in policy, but it a a switch in the the mindset of the Jewish militias and their political leadership, a switch which leads to, as they say, a offensive action and involves a removal or or um, um, expulsion in some cases of Arab communities as a necessity of war, if you like, a, 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 way, a way of waging self-defense. Um, and this did lead to a large, a large numbers of Palestinians leaving their homes.
0: 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Benny Morris, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. Yale University Press is pleased to announce the launch of a new website, Yale Books Unbound. Yale Books Unbound is part of the Institute for the Future of the Books Comet press experiment. It's a way of sharing books and the ideas within them, as well as facilitating some of our works in progress. Yale University Press is pleased to participate in this initiative, since we see it as a very promising way of fulfilling our main objective of disseminating art and knowledge to the widest possible audience and facilitating ongoing and all-important dialogues about ideas and issues that shape our world. Interested? The URL for Yale Books on Bound is org. For more information about this show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Zune, Audio, or any number of sites or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondack, and if you any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University
2: Press. All rights reserved.